Hello, everybody. This is Joe E. Legend. The following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And TWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show here on the WZWA Network. I am your host with the most California in theory, and it has been a hectic few weeks. We've been grinding hard here on the podcast. We've got so many in the can right now, and, um, you know, it's difficult. You've got to hustle. You've got to work your ass off to get these interviews because the wrestling podcast world is so inundated in, in good shows and shitty shows, but I think we're one of the good shows. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited to introduce our guest here today, a hell of a journeyman in the wrestling world. He has been everywhere, man, everywhere. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. He is formerly known in the WWF as Just Joe, but he's mainly known as the one and only Joe E. Legend. Joe, how are you going today, my friend? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on, bro. Uh, you know, and, and I see that you're living in Germany there. How are things going over there at the moment? Uh, it's, you know, like anything with this pandemic, uh, you know, everything's kind of half locking down. I usually, um, I, I don't do most of my work in Germany. I do some, but I usually travel a lot around Europe and then Africa and Japan and stuff like that. And just with the uh, the closures, I mean, I go to France once a month to teach seminars. I go to Poland once a month to teach seminars. I got Spain and Tunisia on the hook. As soon as this stupid pandemic uh, drops off, then I can start traveling there too. So I've been sitting home a lot more. But uh, we're getting nobody's sick. Um, getting extra time with my kids and my rabbits. So I'm happy. That's cool, man. Yeah, I, I guess in a way the pandemic has been a, a real ball ache for a lot of people, uh, especially me, because uh, I write for a magazine that covers concerts and to go from covering U2 and Queen and all these big acts to just going to no concerts and my writing for the magazine going down the gurgler, you know, it's, uh, it certainly has been um, a, a trying year, but that's why this podcast started, Jack. And um, I'm going to throw it over to you, Jack, because you got our first round of questions for our friend, Joe. Yep. And uh, as usual, we will always ask uh, the same question for the first time every time. And that question is how you became a wrestling fan. I became a wrestling fan because of my dad. Uh, I, I'm originally from Toronto. And um, the original Sheik, Sabu's uncle, uh, was kind of the main guy in Detroit. And he used to run stuff. But they used to come up to Toronto a couple times a month, once in the East End where I live and once in the West End. So I hit all the ones at Scarborough Arena in the East End. And my dad brought me there. And I got to see uh, my very first show ever. Uh, main event was the Sheik and Bobo Brazil in a cage. And I had my cousin with me. I was about, I think it was about 13, 13 or 14. And my cousin was with me, who'd been before. So I kind of was relying on his knowledge to kind of get me through. And he's like, you better watch out for this sheet guy. He's you know, in league with the devil and he'll kill you and he smacks kids. And I was like, but somebody should do something about this. <laughs> so then, you know, I thought, hey, Bowersville, that's, he's a big, strong guy. Hopefully he kicks some ass. And then the match came off and it was, you know, exciting. I don't know, maybe my opinion might change. But at the time I was jumping out of my seat. And um, Bobo looked like he had the win, and then Sheik fireballed him in the face. And I, like, <laughs> I somewhere hooked onto the back of my head. I was like, dear God, he is in league with the devil. 
know, <laughs> it, it, it totally engrossed me. And uh, as we walked out of the place, we bumped into a guy named Sweet Daddy Seeky. And my dad's like, oh, my God, it's Sweet Daddy Seeky. And I, I truthfully at the time didn't know who the man was. But I went over, my dad, you know, wanted to meet him and introduced me to him. And I shook his hand and I thought he was a nice gentleman and everything. And then several years later, Seeky and Ron Hutcherson were the two guys who ended up training me to get into wrestling. But it all started with get, uh, shows at Scarborough Arena and then my brother actually watching tons of WWF when Hulk hit it big in 84, I think it was 84-85. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, Ron Hutchins is a name that we've had on the show before. Yeah, Ron's a great guy. Can't say enough good things about Ron. I was just messaging with him yesterday, actually. Awesome, man. Um, how was it that you became friends with, uh, obviously, the legendary uh, Edge and Christian? Um, obviously, you growing up around them. We also had on the show recently uh, Sin Bodhi, who was also a childhood friend of theirs. So it feels like, feels like we're just sort of grabbing all of their childhood friends at the moment. But how, how was... Uh, how did you become friends with Edge and Christian and um, how did they impact your sort of um, wrestling fandom? Uh, I would say mostly just poor luck on my part. <laughs> no, uh, they, they, came, they started training. Edge started training at Sully's. That was the name of the gym, Sully's gym. Um, he started training about a year after I started. And then he, we, we only got along at the gym, but we really didn't hang out much. But I was really good friends with this guy, Keith, who wrestled on the name Zach Wilde. And um, I went off to Japan for FMW. And during my time, I'd call back and see how everything was going and such. And Keith was like, yeah, this guy, Adam, he's a really good guy. You know, he's, he's been hanging out a lot. So by the time I got back, he and Keith had buddied up so much that um, he just kind of became part of the, the three of us, me, Keith, and Adam. And then Jay joined a year, uh, Christian joined a year later after that. So because he and Adam were like best friends since, you know, uh, since they were babies, uh, he just kind of was immediately involved in, in the crew there. And then when we would do gigs around Ontario, which was rare because Ontario was so heavily regulated that it was really hard to get anybody who wasn't established on any of the, the local shows because it cost thousands and thousands just to get a show off the ground. So they'd take all the old guys who they knew, um, would, would pull something out of their hat for the audience, and they weren't willing, willing to trust us. But since I'd gotten back from Japan, they were like, oh, he's been to Japan. He must know what he's doing. So I was able to kind of drag them onto shows. And we ended up working for Tony Parisi at the Chin Picnic and stuff. And then that ultimately got, I got Winnipeg, which I brought them along. And then um, we did some shows in Ontario after the Winnipeg thing, which got us into uh, Detroit. And uh, Detroit really kicked us off hard because they let me book a lot of stuff. And they gave me an edge a real push as a tag team called Sex and Violence. And then we got Christian and Rhino involved and the team was called Thug Life. And we were kind of this pro-Canadian team. Um, you know, hey, America sucks, yada, yada, yada. And we burnt the flag in the ring and stuff. But we started our pro-Canadian thing about three weeks before Brett started his in WWF. So even though we were first, Brett came along and just made ours look weak because they, the WWF machine behind him. But ultimately, <laughs> it all started because Adam was screening and he buddied up with Keith and that made me buddy up with him and then Jay piggybacked on and so forth. Awesome, man. Um, yeah, of course, damn you, Brett, stealing the ideas of um, old Joe over here. Um, <laughs> yeah. how, was the, right. how was the training <laughs> experience for you and um, where was it that you trained again? Sorry. I was in Toronto, downtown Toronto, with a place called Sully's Gym. Sully's 53 Street, yeah. Uh, it's this uh, really kind of 
dumpy boxing gym. If you remember Rocky III, um, Apollo brought uh, Rocky to, I think it was uh, Los Angeles, and brought him to this little, you know, crappy gym, saying these guys are the eye of the tiger. It was that kind of place. It was yeah. all ring. The ring was beyond stiff. Um, it was a dirty place, but it had a certain attitude to it where you, you weren't worried about polishing the equipment. You were worried about beating the shit out of stuff. Yeah. So it wound up kind of inspiring you in a way. And then Ron would have us do these crazy training things. There's a stadium outside called Lamport Stadium. We'd have to run around the outside of the stadium on the sidewalk six times before we get in the ring. <laughs> oh, my God. A thing called PTA, which is pain, torture, and agony. I use PTA when I'm teaching classes now, you know, wherever I'm teaching seminars. Um, and it's the best wrestling cardio ever, but it will burn your shit out. I actually used it. I had a TV series in England in uh, 2005 called Celebrity Wrestling. And it was me, D'Lo Brown, and Roddy Piper. And D'Lo and I trained celebrities like wrestlers, and then we gave them wrestling gimmicks, and then they did like American Gladiators type uh, games, and Piper hosted it. And I had an Olympic silver medalist on my team, Ewan Thomas, who's a hell of an athlete. And I had him, I did the PTA with everybody. I don't make anybody do anything I wouldn't do. And I had him dry heaving by the end of our first training session for PTA. I'm not an Olympic cal caliber athlete by any wow. stretch. Because it's specific to wrestling and getting your heart rate up and down, it's such a strong wrestling workout that I was able to take an Olympic caliber athlete and have him just a mess by the end of 10 minutes. <laughs> I yeah. thought my personal training earlier today pushed me hard. Now I know that that was child's play. <laughs> I just wow. I think the Russian Olympic team does it for 15 minutes and the Russian uh, army does it for 15 minutes. And Ron had us doing it for between 30 and 45. Fuck. So Ron was a stickler for cardio. And, uh, you know, I'm at the time I was mad at him, but uh, in hindsight, I'm super grateful because I have asthma. So I have to really be conscious of my breathing and my, you know, my cardiovascular more so than you know other people. And mm. I, I survived more than I should have simply because Ron was, uh, a stickler for that PTA workout. Right. Um, wow. Heavy training there, but uh, it all leads up to something, and uh, it's in Brampton, Ontario in 1992. Your debut match against Zach Wilde, uh, not the Zach Wilde from Black Label Society, but Keith Asun. Is that how you pronounce his surname? Um, <laughs> is there any story oh, behind your debut match? Um, yeah, it was for Tiger Jeet Singh, who, um, ah. you know, Tiger, yeah, you had the sword and he butt end you with the sword in the face of it. He was one of the biggest stars in Japan ever. He's the one who opened the door for FMW and NOW in Japan for me. But, uh, we'd had a couple of potential matches and then the shows got canceled cause they weren't legal. Um, so we were getting, Keith and I were both getting frustrated. Keith is Zach Wilds really. Yeah. Um, we were getting really frustrated and then finally Tiger had this thing. Uh, it was a big Indian festival, and there's ten or twelve thousand people there. Uh, all you know, obviously Indian people, and um, he decided he was going to run three or four matches on the show. So he said, "Yeah, we'll throw these guys on as a favor because he and Siku were really close friends." And we got there, and the weather went sour, and it looked like it was going to rain. All right. So they decided got to get Tiger out there now. So they had an opening match, and they put Tiger and Silent Brian McNeil, wrestling's only deaf wrestler at the time went out there and did their match. And then Keith and I had to close the show in our first match ever. <laughs> so I think it was 
ten or twelve thousand uh, Indian people, and I wow. was hands down the absolute most god awful baby face ever. I didn't look at, I didn't rally the crowd up. I didn't do anything like you know the baby face cheerleading stuff. And I remember specifically drop kicking Keith and jumped to my feet, and the crowd popped for me. And I have it on videotape somewhere. I turned and gave him a dirty look. I'm supposed to be a baby face. Like, I'm just totally dropping the ball. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, I was working with Keith, who, I mean, we, that was our same day, same match was our first match, both of us. And Ron was our uh, referee. So he was able to kind of – we had the comfort of having him being able to quarterback something if we panicked and forgot something. Yeah. Um, mostly he just kept telling dirty jokes through the whole thing to keep us lighthearted. Yeah. It actually – in hindsight, I thought, gee, you could have really messed things up. I just stand there laughing. But uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. Ron is, for years, was totally underestimated as a trainer. I'm glad he's getting his due now. Awesome, bro. Um, I wanted to uh, also bring it over to you, as you mentioned before, sex and violence with the one and only Sexton Hardcastle, a.k.a. <laughs> a. Edge uh, in the Detroit area. Um, tell me a little bit about that tag team's run together and, um, you know, what uh, I guess you would call it the independent uh, scene was like uh, in Detroit around that time. Um, we worked for a guy named Sweet Daddy Malcolm Monroe. There's a lot of sweet daddies roaming around there, I guess, at the time. Uh, he was a sweetheart of a guy. I, when I go um, – currently, when I, I go to Detroit usually once a year. This year, obviously, kind of screwed that up. But normally, I go once a year and I uh, for Rhino. And um, Malcolm has sadly passed away, but his son runs XICW. And so I work for him when I'm there, and he's a great guy. But uh, we work for ICW, Insane Championship Wrestling. And uh, it was essentially an ECW knockoff. You know, yeah. it was a lot of blood, a lot of tables and chairs and barbed wire and all that stuff. Um, because ECW was so brilliantly underproduced that you could, you could put together a show and you didn't need all the WWE fireworks and, and yeah. all that to make it look high end. It was actually had a certain low end value. These guys aren't here for the money. They're here for the passion and all that stuff. So it worked. And... Um, yeah, we, we came in. Originally, we said we were from New Jersey just because New Jersey had swept the Detroit uh, Red Wings in the Stanley Cup hockey right. uh, for four games. Yeah. So we came out of the first match. We had uh, New Jersey Devils sweaters on. <laughs> yeah, we brought out some brooms, and we're sweeping our way to the ring to piss everybody off. <laughs> Great stuff. And um, because uh, – this guy, A.T. Huck, was the referee, but he'd come to a show in Ontario and seen us there, and he's like, oh, i got to get these guys into Detroit. And I'm totally thankful he did. And so they brought us in there, and we were, I think we were really the first guys with, I don't want to say the flashiest gear, but we had matching wrestling gear that didn't look generic. Yeah. So in turn, we really looked kind of like a team, whereas a lot of the other guys were kind of mix and match teams, or they had very basic wrestling gear. So we kind of stood out, so I think that helped us as well. So they put... What was it? That was the Midwest tag belts on us. Because it was also Midwest Championship Wrestling and ICW. They kind of worked together. So they put those belts on us, and then they decided they wanted to have street fight tag titles. So then they oh, put wow. those. And then they, would, uh, they shipped in um, the headbangers just before they got their WWE run. Uh, so we got to do a program with them, which was helpful to us. Um, but we, we were doing the sex and violence things for a good while. And then we teased a breakup of me and Edge. So we did this huge match, really back and forth. And then Christian came out, you know, towards the end of it and said, hey, you know, guys, we're buddies. These people all suck. You know, the standard kind of 
us against the crowd thing. And, you know, you guys are even saying you're from New Jersey. You're from Canada. And then, of course, boo. And then um, we had a whole bunch of America guys jump in the ring and kind of tee off with us. And then Rhino came out, who's from Detroit. Right. And everybody was like, yay, Rhino's here. And then Rhino turned on all the Americans and joined us <laughs> to get our beat. So that became our, oh. our thing. They wanted to originally call it something kind of budget, like the Canadian World Order. And we were like, ah, it sucks. So then <laughs> Thug life, and that really worked for us. And it was just the age of factions. You had the NWO, and you had the Generation X, and uh, they were still talking about the Horsemen. The Horsemen had kind of passed by by then, but there was the whole business was so faction heavy. The Triple Threat and ECW, and yeah, the dangerous, all that stuff. So it was natural that you know Indies were going to go like like the big leagues and have factions, and we just happened to get a lot of good heat because of our faction, and in turn because we're right on the border with Canada we were able to, to build that heat, the Canadian American heat. You know, and like awesome. I said, we were, we started uh, 14 riots. It was a great time. <laughs> it was, my wife thinks I'm a mental case for, for looking back on it so fondly. But um, I remember we used to go to this one place. I think it was the Motor City Sports Club. And every time we got there, the place looked worse. It was totally dilapidated. The walls had big holes. Every time you did a match, another hole was broken. Walls, chairs, and everything was smashed. And the toilets never flushed, which is gross as hell. <laughs> yeah, we're getting fed up. So then um, there's a guy named Rick Matrix and a guy named Dirty TX, Dirty Tex, doing a cowboy gimmick. And they had this street fight match, and they fought out of the building and into the parking lot. They had a, a fenced-off parking lot with a bunch of broken down cars. Nobody owned them. So they're power bombing each other into the windshields and all that crap. And somebody called the cops. Like the crowd's all out there cheering and stuff. And somebody called the cops thinking it was a real fight with a guy in Detroit dressed like a cowboy. Whatever. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Um, so the cops showed up and we found out the reason none of that crap worked is because the place had been condemned months ago. Malcolm just showed up and pulled down the, the yellow warning tape saying, do not enter, brought in a generator to run the lights and just started oh, running the lights. Wow. No way. <laughs> to pay for uh, rent or anything. So the whole <laughs> roof could have collapsed on us. We never would have known until it was too late, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was working in Detroit, man. Detroit, they, they make crap happen. If it's not going to happen, they'll make it happen. That's brilliant, man. That's brilliant. Really. Um... <laughs> that's, that's a... <laughs> Really, uh, <laughs> goddamn. Uh, I wanted to take a quick sidebar and ask you if you had any funny stories of Christian being annoying, because I'm sure you have a few. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's all kinds. Because um, if you'd ask anybody who knows him well, you say, uh, what do you think of Jay? Yeah, Jay's a fucking dick. <laughs> like, they always do. You don't know they like him. Like, he's just, he loves to annoy people. And the thing is, he doesn't annoy me. What he does, he kind of uses me as his audience because he knows I know what he's up to. So what he does, he annoys the person next to him and then he kind of elbows me in the ribs like, ah, ah. Um, I know, like, for instance, he used to drive Keith Mental all the time, that Zach Wild. We'd be driving down the highway, the 401. We're doing 100, 120 kilometers an hour down the highway. Keith's driving, I'm passenger seat, Jay's in the back. And we're talking about probably wrestling or, or music, one of the two. And... He's like, Jay, cut it out. And I, I don't know what's going on because I'm in the pastor seat. 
that Jake, stop it. And then I look over, and what Jake keeps doing is doing this. He keeps giving him the finger in the rearview mirror. <laughs> He's like, Jake, cut it out. And she's like, <laughs> he's like jay i fucking swear i'm gonna fucking cabbage it and uh jay's like yeah okay fine hey keith hey keith hey keith hey keith over and over <laughs> keith's like, what he goes, there's a party in your mouth and everyone's coming <laughs> like that's it take the wheel and he just turns around and jumps towards the back seat and starts punching jay in the forehead and i'm driving <laughs> I'm reaching across 120 kilometers an hour, holding the steering wheel steady while we're zipping down the highway while he's punching Jay in the head and Jay's laughing like a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> just, keeps, just keeps prodding yeah. him until he snaps. <laughs> and he's got the patience of Job to do it. He will wait until it works. That's the type of stuff Jay does. <laughs> Good guy. Oh, he's, sound, he sounds great. Um, over to you, Jack. Do you have any stories of the uh, the Canadian death tours? Oh, the um, the Manitoba ones over the frozen lake. And all yeah, that? yeah, yeah. We're hoping to meet someone who's done one. I at one time I had the record. I'd had I think 18, 18 of the tours. Oh my 17 god! Or 18. And now I mean, Chichi Cruz must have been. He's a local there, and he's fantastic. And yeah, he's done. I must have done more than me. But at one point, I had the record. Um, Golly, some of the. I know there's the one that Edge talks about in his book, where we're we're driving. We got to we had to leave it really late to drive back to Winnipeg. So it was like four in the morning. We're all exhausted, and we got to this patch of ice that we had to drive over. And it was like left and right. The left side was all crushed up ice. You could see jagged, and then the other side was smooth. And so we got there and I was driving the cube van and Tony, the promoter was driving the, uh, the, the rental van that had all the, most of the boys in there. I had like four guys in the, in the ring truck with me and we stopped and like, I don't know which kind of side to go on. And so the guy beside me, his name was Brian Jewell, who's local Winnipeg guy. Good guy. He's like, I've done this a million times. You want me to drive over it? I was like, uh, yeah, if you've done it a million times, I'll trust you to drive over a lake. So he goes to the smooth side and he gets out about 30 yards. The whole thing is about 150 yards. He goes out about 30 yards and the front of the, the car just goes through the first layer of ice. Oh, shit. shit. So we're like, oh, this, that, that ain't good. <clears throat> Tony gets out of the, uh, the other car and he's screaming at us. And he's got like a thick Italian accent. You stupid bastard, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't, I didn't fucking do it. <laughs> and so... Tony gets in his car and he races over the jagged part and makes it just fine. Water shooting up, you know, 50 feet in the air. And so he comes back and he's going to drive it. So, all right. So we get in front of the, the van and we start, me and Keith and Jewel, we get in front of the van, we start pushing it in reverse, you know, so you can back out of this hole. And we rock, rock, rock. We pull it up and it goes through again. Oh, shit. We're getting more and more uptight. And then I look at Keith and go, why are we doing this alone? We've got a van load of wrestlers over here. It's the three of us. we got Rhino and fucking Edge and Christian. Man. Get over here, you bastard. So they start, they start coming over, and they get about halfway across, and Christian's leg goes through the ice up to just shy of his upper hip. So at this point, he's like, fuck that noise. He gets up and goes right back to the, to the van, right? Oh, God. Edge followed him. Rhino came along. So that was the four of us, and Rhino helped push this van out. We got it out. 
And then Tony hit the gas and zipped across and made it. But ice and water looked like water was going to go under. As he (laughs) zipped by, you hear a huge crack in the ice, and Rhino goes, ah, and runs the wrong way. (laughs) I'm running that way. I start laughing my ass off because I'm just delirious at this point. (laughs) But I have to go, come on, it's okay, Terry, come on. He walked really slowly, like, oh, God, oh, God. He's like praying. And I'm telling you, it's okay, buddy. And to this day, I had something really funny in mind at the time. And I'm trying to kind of placate him. And I'm like, hey, you know what's really funny? And he goes, he looks at me in the face, like totally disserts. He's, he's like, the fact that I'm totally ready to shit and piss myself. And I was like, <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. And then I forgot what it was. To this day, I can't remember what the funny thing was. That totally- <laughs> so I had to take him by the arm and walk him across the ice and let him know it was okay. And we ended up finally getting back to Winnipeg. They would room me and him together because we both snore like trains, right? What I wanted to do, and I decided against it because there was really no upside. The woman at the front desk was a really great lady. And she would, because we stayed there so much, she'd give me the keys to her car so I'd go grocery shopping. She's a really nice lady. I wanted to wait till he fell asleep. And I wanted to get the keys for the storeroom offer and go get like a, an extension cord, you know? And I wanted to, when Rhino was asleep, wrap him up in the extension cord in his bed, right? And then I want to stand over him with a bucket of ice water and then splash We go, oh my God, we're going through. Right? <laughs> <laughs> to watch him freak out. But the trouble is, he'd have a heart attack and die, which is productive. <laughs> no, or he'd break the bed, get up and strangle me, which <laughs> was again counterproductive. So it's the one I kind of always wish I'd done, but I'm probably alive today because I didn't. <laughs> what a great story thanks for sharing that one just to get it from your point of view other than, rather than edges in his book <clears throat> i didn't read his book so i i, I don't know I, i've heard i read it like ages ago so <laughs> yeah i read it ages ago so i can't really remember what it, what, what he said but yeah i knew something pretty dramatic happened <laughs> back to yeah. you jack so many so many we've had we got chased off one reservation by um, three truckloads of Indians with hockey sticks trying to kill us. Fucking <laughs> hell. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of crazy crap that happens on those reservations. <laughs> it's totally law. So they have their laws, and if you don't listen to them, like that, you, they just, you're out in the middle of nowhere. If they decide to, you know, to end you, nobody will find the body. Yeah. So you've got got to be somewhat cautious and keeping the, the chief and the, the tribe happy. That's it. Yeah, man. Um, so your friends start getting signed to the WWE. Um, obviously, this would give you some sort of hope. You've got eyes on you. You've got eyes on your friends. Uh, so how was the feeling for you when you start seeing uh, some of your friends getting picked up by the WWE? And uh, did you have any hope that you'd be uh, following soon after them? Well, yeah, we all were looking at WWE. Well, at the time, WWE or WCW. Those yeah. were the two deals ECW to a lesser degree we all liked ECW but we knew the money wasn't as strong as WCW or WWE um Adam was the first one signed and then um he had a dark match somewhere and he's his car had broken down so he got Jay to drive him he said Jay bring your gear just in case and Jay did and right. sure enough when we got there, they said oh you're late um, but we want to see what you can do. And he's like, well, my buddy's here. Do you mind if he works with me? So he got a look-see right there, and that's what got Jay the, 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 
the particularly strong Loki to, to get him his job. Yeah. Jay's excellent. I mean, it's not like they weren't. I don't think they would have to really screw up to not sign Jay. Jay's exceptional. As much as he's a yeah. dick, he's an exceptional person. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, so they got both signed up and they were they were pushing for me. I know they were because Jim Cornette called me. Terry Taylor called me and they kept saying, yeah, you know, we're looking, we have ideas, yada, yada. And um, I went and had a tryout at Skydome in Toronto. Um, 44,000 people. Holy shit. Jesus. Yeah. Well, at first I was, I, I just had that kind of have a quiet word with myself. I was like, well, wait a second. Really, if it's 44,000 people or 44 people, I'm going to have the same match. I'm going to work my ass off. And I was working with this guy, Rob El Fuego, who's another one of the guys from Sully's. Oh, okay. And um, I was hanging out with Rob. Rob had had a few tryouts already. So I'm talking to him. Here's what I'm thinking we should do. I'm talking backstage to him. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. I said, don't cool guy me. You're giving me eight minutes of your life. I went through all the problems of teaching you a bunch of that lucha shit. You're going to give me eight minutes of your fucking life. So he kept kind of half blowing me off, half, half listening. And I thought, okay, well, comfortable. I'm still going to be in his ear the whole time. But we got to gorilla position and we're standing there and Cornette is being so great with us. He's like, look, we're not expecting the crowd to jump up and down on the seats. They're here to see Austin. They're here to see Taker. They don't know you yet. And we understand that. So don't let that bother you. Go out there, have something functional. Give us something we can build on. Like he was so great at, for lack of a better term, lowering the bar, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Bless his heart. I love Cornette. So he was, he's having a word with us and then, uh, Rob looks out through the, the curtain. He looks back at me and his eyes are huge. He's like, there are people out there. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Serious. Are you fucking upset? He's like, that's, that's a lot of people. I'm like, buddy. Like, oh, we fuck. We're having the same fucking life. Don't worry. And I remember it's the last time I can honestly say that I had like one of those frozen seconds where I'm like, oh, my God, this is it. Because I was standing there, Cornetta finished up with us and then Bruce Pritchard was saying guys you know do what you can and basically saying you're going to be shit but it's okay <laughs> we think it's only totally shit and then all of a sudden this god awful music started playing really loud and he goes okay go legend and I was like, <laughs> like <laughs> dreaming about for years is what I've been working towards for years I got through the curtain and as soon as I got through the curtain I looked down the aisle and there was a bunch of people right at the front where, right where they could see me come out of the curtain. It was a whole gang of people from Detroit who come to all our ICW shows. Right. And they jump up. Yeah, oh, legend. Fuck you, you piece of shit. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, I hate you too. <laughs> and I had somebody. <laughs> and as soon as that happened, I cooled off. And I, was, I wasn't as in my own head. So I thought my entire match, I'm going to play with these fuckers and let them go jump up and down. And that totally calmed everything down and I, I felt good. Mass went well. Um, they flew me to um, Connecticut for a tryout camp because they were only doing them at the um, at the warehouse down there. They, keep, they yeah. take it to Titan and they take it to the warehouse. And they really liked me, but they didn't have a spot for me. And I said, okay, well, I'm off to Eastern Canada to work for Rene Dupree's dad, Emil, um, for the summer. And I know that um, Leo Burke's bringing in Paul Orndorff to have guys looked at for WCW. I just want to let you know what cards are on the table. I prefer to work here, but at the same time, 
you know, and so they were caught, they were, you know, conscious of all that. They were cool with me. And um, I went to Eastern Canada and then I got a call out of the blue from Christian towards the end of the tour. It was like uh, end of August. He says, uh, Joe, Terry Taylor's going to call you in like 10 minutes. I'm like, because why? Because he sounded really nervous. He goes, they're starting up the new Freebirds and they think they want you to be the Terry Gordy of the team. I was like, really? A Freebird me? Like, he's Southern. He's into um, Southern Fried Rock and they drink. I don't particularly care for Southern Fried Rock. I'm from Toronto and I don't drink. I haven't had a drink since I was 20. Are you sure they want me, of all people, to be a Freebird? He says, that's what they want. I said, well, guess what? Joe's wow. officially finished. Oh, I'm going to be a fucking Freebird. So Taylor called me and said, we're all interested. We like you a lot. We're going to fly in. Uh, when can we have you here? I said, well, I'm done here on the 5th of September. He goes, okay, can we fly in on the 7th? I'm in. He goes, okay, so we'll look at you on the 7th. We'll fly in on the 6th. So it worked out timingly quite perfect. And uh, they flew me in. They said, Michael Hayes is going to be here because he's going to be the manager and he's got to green light everybody on the team. So it was me and Reckless Youth. And then they were going to have one third guy. And I'd heard a million different names thrown around for being the third guy. But basically, we wrestled each other. And Terry Taylor um, hired us on the spot from the warehouse saying, I'd be an asshole if I didn't hire you guys after that match. And that's how I ended up getting into the company through recommendation, recommendation, then I was going to be a Freebird, and then while I was waiting for my visa, Hayes decided he didn't want to do the Freebirds and wanted to be just an agent, and they killed the Freebird unit. So oh, right. a direction that they wanted me for Right, so they have to go back to the drawing board with a new idea whilst now they've signed you. Yeah. Oh, Shit. Yeah, <laughs> headache for the boys. Um, back to you, Carl. Uh, I'm going to skip a couple of questions here, Jack, because some of this stuff's been covered now. But um, yeah, uh, I wanted to, I guess, fast forward through to when you might have been um, told about, you know, what the next idea was. Because um, your first match after this that I saw, twenty uh, second of November '99, a dark match on Jacked uh, against. The opponent says, question mark, question mark. Um, okay. Had you been told that you were going to be just Joe yet? Or uh, when, when did those uh, um, talks start taking place that you were going to do this different character? <laughs> this god-awful character, I think is what you're going to say. And you'd be right. But what I loved it. I loved it. I was, I loved it so. awesome. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you why it was god-awful. But I... Um, I'd been home and I'd been you know, picking up indie bookings, but not a ton because they kept saying, we're going to need you soon. Be ready, be ready, be ready. And then it took them like nine months to get my visa, which is ridiculous. Because right. Chris Strange had been kicked out of the States for doing some kind of a photo shoot for an American magazine and she didn't legally have the papers to do it. No. And they were still able to get her on TV in two weeks. Well, <laughs> they weren't trying real hard. They tried hard for her. They weren't trying real hard for me. So... Um, eventually they flew me down to Connecticut to meet Vince. I'd done some, they, they had me drive down to Buffalo and drive down to Rochester to do dark matches just to see what I was up to and if I was staying in shape and how my work was coming along and all that. And then they fly me in to meet Vince 
they get me there at like 10 in the morning. I don't get to meet them because of the blizzards and everything. I, I got the last flight out of Toronto before they closed the airport for a blizzard. Um, I think I met with Vince around 7 p.m. I've been sitting around all day. I went to use the gym in Titan. I mean, they were very generous with their with all the stuff. There were three of us there. And um, I had a few ideas in mind. And so they bring me in to meet Vince and Vince and his wife, his wife is offering me coffee. I felt awkward saying, yeah, pour me a coffee, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I don't want to say, no, you're not good enough to give me coffee. You know, you always feel self-conscious and everything you're doing there. So I sat there with me, him and me, him, Bruce and his wife and Linda. And so Vince sits down and he says, he goes, well, first of all, what's in the water in Canada? He goes, all you guys are just really, really good. So I'm like, okay, this sounds, this sounds promising, right? Yeah. Um, I'd done an interview on the phone with Kevin Kelly and given him a list of what I'd done up to that point so that he, Vince had something to read. But I think he also, why it took so long is that he was in his office watching matches from the three of us that they brought in for these interviews so that he'd have a fresh frame of reference to, to jump on, right? So he's saying, well, you know, what do you see? And he goes, I'm looking through your, your thing here. He goes, at one point, he goes, I see you did a gimmick called the male nurse. Now, I did that as a gag on the Indian, right? Because they, they made me be Dr. X. Because uh, Don Callis couldn't make the trip. He was feeling sick. So they said, do you mind working twice? I'm like, ah, double payday. I'm looking for more ring time. So I wore this Dr. X in the opening match, and then later on in the night, I'd be myself. And Dr. X isn't going to get any heat in the modern world, right? So I pulled uh, the ring announcer, we called it the goat. We pulled the goat aside. And I said, um, say that I'm from San Francisco General Hospital, communicable disease ward. Call me the male nurse. And I did it totally just because I wanted to see Bad News Brown laugh. Because he's always... <laughs> look on the face. And I, I've tagged with him in Africa and everything. Like, he's a great guy. But he always has this sour look at his face. And I went out and I did the most camp, um, like Adrian Street, Adrian Adonis type, really campy gagan, right? Yeah. Just for the sake of it. And I would take hip tosses and roll out of the ring and sit on some guy's lap and play with his hair. I was doing everything <laughs> just to <laughs> And when I came back to the locker room, he was. He had tears in his eyes. He goes, you were fucking nuts. So Vince looked at his sheet and he says, I understand you did the male nurse and you described it as making gold dust look butch. And I just, my eyes like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. No, no, no. He looks up on the page, takes his glass off, he goes, I never want to ever see that. And I was like, oh, thank God. Fucking hell. I afraid I practically joked myself into something that got awful. And uh, so I suggested, he said, what do you suggest? And I said, well, I've been studying cults for a good long time. I find cults just scary. It's amazing how you can get somebody to do something that they wouldn't normally do, something horrific, some murder or something like that. Um, if you manipulate them to say, you know, if you don't do it, God will hate you. And you don't want God hating you, right? I find that really scary. And he's like, you know, we don't really like to go the religious route. We don't, you know, we're nonpartisan. We're non-denominational. I'm thinking brother love, the ministry of darkness, brother Devon, you know, all this shit's going yeah. on. But, you know, I don't say it, but I'm thinking it. Yeah. 
And so he's like, he goes, you got something else? And I said, well, it's the tail end of the grunge era. And everybody, you know, looks like they're walking around smelling like cigarettes, right? So I said, what if I cut my hair short, suit and tie, and I have a group called the Moral Majority. And I tell people to straighten up and fly right and, you know, be moral right. and decent. Good. And he's like, yeah, I don't see money on that. And then later on, he comes up with Mordecai and the right to censor. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, I wasn't thrilled with that. But I kept kind of coming back to the cult thing. Well, I really thought that had some legs. And I said, you know, I said, I'm not trying to say I'm God. I'm saying I'm a messenger. But then, obviously, I'm just a manipulative bastard as a heel using God yeah. to manipulate like a faith healer type. And then he just kind of stops and stares off just like he would like on TV, like a character. He's like, messenger. Uh, <laughs> I'm just the messenger. And I look at him and I'm kind of like, all right. And I look at Bruce and Bruce is looking at him like, this is on one, you know, <laughs> Hannibal's on the jazz. And then Vin starts really rolling with this. And he said, yeah, this whole messenger thing, I like it. Okay, Bruce, uh, get down to legal and see if the word, uh, the term, the messenger has been copyrighted. And it kind of went in that direction. And we threw some ideas around where basically I kind of be with the acolytes where I'd have information on people and people would pay me to pay the acolytes to go kick somebody's ass. Right. And I'd be, oh, be awesome. associated with them. But then by the time they got me to TV, it went, they got this guy, Jamie as a writer and it went in a completely different ridiculous direction where I showed up every week in every city, but apparently I wasn't employed by the company. <laughs> there, was, there was no discernible job I was doing that I was also in everybody's ear. Um, and I never wanted to fight, but I had wrestling gear and was in the ring. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, man. Right? I was backstage stooge, and then somehow I was in the ring, even though I wasn't a wrestler. <laughs> and I, I remember asking Gershwitz, I said, all right, listen, am I lying or am I telling the truth with this, with this stooge shit? He's like, doesn't matter. I go, of course it matters. He's like, why? I said, well, if, if I'm telling the truth, then I'm not a heel. I'm actually a good guy trying to help people. And I should work in that direction. If I'm lying, why am I lying? Nobody lies just for the sake of lying. They lie to achieve a directive. So what's my end game so that I can work my character, negative, you know, the heel side and my dishonesty towards, you know, a championship or something that I have to have a goal in mind. Anybody who would show up here and be part of the roster has a goal. I will figure it out. I never figured it out. They used me to get the Hunter and um, Kurt thing off the ground. Yeah. Or Stephanie. And then once that was in play, they had to pull me off it or the heat would switch to me, which I understand. I get it. They had to keep the heat between those two guys. But once they pulled me off it, they didn't know what to do. And I, right. I, pulled, I pulled Stephanie. I said, like, you guys are booking me out of a job. Like, six months from now, I won't be here. Because right, everything, yeah. there, there's no heat on it. There's nothing to it. And it's not financially viable for you to keep paying me not to make you money. And they kept saying, no, we love your work. We just got to find you a, a vehicle to work with. And they just never did. And then they bought WCW. So they had a ton of guys that were ready to move up into main event positions and full rosters for town shows that they didn't need a guy. They weren't really moving in, in any particular direction. Right. Yeah. So, and also they're paying for a visa for me because I'm Canadian. So on top of it, I'm for expenditure to them. All my flights yeah. are more expensive because they're international. My visa costs, all that. I understand. I, 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 
Jack, we, our questions are a little bit all over the place here, so I'm, I'm going to try and fine, like man. get us back into the right no spot before to. I, I throw like, it to you. Um, I've got an idea on where we're at, but I'll, I'm liking sort of um, sort of where we're, where we're going with it because that, that, that's super interesting the way you're sort of putting the yeah. perspective on the whole Joss Joe gimmick because I, I loved it for how silly and stupid that it was. But now that you make yeah, a what? point, like, why is he going to every city but not, <laughs> he's not employed? Like, how does he yeah, know? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, right? But it's still entertaining because I just found it hilarious that this this guy was just walking around backstage staring shit up. <laughs> For what? For what reason? I don't know. It just pops me. <laughs> exactly. There has to be an end game where it's pointless. Yeah. And I also have to get away with murder with a gimmick like that. I have to be honky-tonk man. I have to be the referee Danny Davis where they don't quite shut my mouth. They almost shut my mouth. And then I get away with murder. But they never let me get away with murder, so immediately I got my comeuppance. So there was no yeah. long game heat on it. They always killed my heat at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I was watching some of the matches that you had earlier. Um, you, you, you work with a lot of different guys, but like I'm just like, when's he going to get a win? I mean, I when I saw Brooklyn Brawler get a win on you, I'm like, are you serious? Brooklyn Brawler didn't need that win. Like, give give, give just Joe a win here. <laughs> No, I, I think at that point they were just they, – they knew Steve was there every week and that I was going to be going to Memphis. Right. Yeah. So if, if nothing else, I don't know if that was a favor to just put a, a knife in the, in, the, in the heart of it and just kill it off so we can start something new later. Or if it was a rib on me, I don't know. Or maybe they just wanted to see, is this guy a pro? Will he do what he's asked or will he kick up a fuss? Because I never kicked up a fuss. I planned to numerous times. My second day in the company, I was going to go punch out Pat Patterson. Oh, shit. What happened? I was still doing dark matches at the time, but I was there weekly doing dark matches. And um, I brought my fiance then, my wife now. We did uh, Vancouver, and then we had to go do Tacoma, Washington. So I'd flown her in, you know, for my first shots there. So I went out and did a match, a tag match, and then I was having a shower, and then I come out from the shower – and my missus is backstage, not in the locker room area, but in the, in the general area where the screen is, where all the rest of can sit and watch the rest of the show. Yeah. And uh, she's off to one side. She's looking all kind of frazzled. I'm like, you know, something wrong? She goes, who's that guy over there? And she points out, oh, that's, that's Pat. She goes, he was just terrible today. I don't know why. She goes, he came over here and tried to kick me out. And I, I showed him my pass, my backstage pass. And I said, like, I'm here with Joe Ledge. Nobody here works on that day. She goes, he just did a dark match. Like, you can look on the, the board here. His name's right here. Where are you from? And she goes, uh, I'm from Germany. He goes, oh, that's why you talk so funny. And walked away. It was just fucking... What? Of all people to say that. <laughs> right, exactly. So I was like, well, I guess I got to go twat Pat, right? So I'm like, well, looks like a bit fire. So I start walking. And clearly, I had a certain angry gait to my walk. And Christian walks up. He said, hey, Joe, are you, you all right? I said, yeah, I might be getting fired. So it's nice working with you for two days. He goes, why? I said, I'm going to go twat uh, Patterson for your ignorance to the wife. Or fiance at the time. And um, he goes, what? Why? Why? So I explained to him. He goes, ah, I don't. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I said, yeah, you wouldn't. I would. This is worth, you know, uh, honor is worth more to me than a paycheck. Fuck that. Yeah. And then, Adam, Adam, get over here. So Adam comes over. He's trying to talk me out. And Jericho comes over. And the three of them. And Jericho made the most sense of the book. He's like, look, do you think Patterson would pull that shit with Taker's wife? <laughs> I'm like, oh, he goes, exactly. 
He goes, wait till you get your feet in, you know, get, get yourself a good spot in here. And then you can, you know, then you can lean on the guy for doing that. Taker's got such a spot. They'll probably get rid of Pat before Taker now. He goes, yeah. Get your, don't give up all that money. Don't get, this is what you've been working towards. You're going to give it all up over one ignorant comment. You're going to let him win. Cause you'll get fired. He might get hit, but he'll be here for years and you won't. You'll lose your entire dream. And Jericho made a lot of sense. Right. Fucking. I walked away. As much as I wanted to slap him, I didn't. Did you ever come? Sorry, keep going. I wanted to give the writers shit. Like, I would talk to um, the one guy. I'd be like, he'd tell me, this is what we're doing. I'm like, well, here's why it doesn't make sense. And then he'd get all pissy with me. I'm like, well, you ask my opinion. I give you my opinion. You don't like the fact that I'm just not kissing your ass and he basically I think he had heat with me because he started telling me when I first met him his name was Jamie and he came and sat down with me in catering and said I'm going to be your agent for your first few matches I'm like okay great I'm trying to be polite and pleasant I'll be nice to everybody unless you give me a reason not to and um, he started telling me that he does martial arts he was going to do some karate tournament I said oh really because I did karate for years I got four black belts like let's talk martial arts we don't know I'm sure you're bored talking wrestling let's talk martial arts yeah. And I guess, I guess maybe that was politically not the best move backstage because most guys would be like, oh, don't kick my ass and makes them feel big. Whereas I'm like, oh, fuck, let's talk. And because I didn't big him up, he all all right. of a sudden kind of dirty look and never really did much with me. Maybe because I had more black belts in him, he feels less accomplished. I don't know. Yeah. But since then, he was shitty with me. And I wanted to go smack him and always get talked out of it and – I understand. Like nobody had malice telling me not to to stand up and and shit on people who I thought deserved to be shit on. But looking back, how everything played out, I would say I probably should have, because how much worse could it have gone? And at least I would have felt all right. I stood my ground on that. And there'd be this big story of you. Remember, uh, yeah, yeah. Joey Legend. He's the guy that punched out Pat Patterson. Like you'd have this. <laughs> You'd have this thing about you now, like <laughs> from old. I'd have a, I would have had a job with WCW for the next year and a half. Right? Oh, one hundred percent. You go on TV. First thing you do is talk about it on the mic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just it. But after that, you know, I'd be nails. Oh man! Exactly. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> God knows what they would have done with you in the if if you had if you had done that, gone to WCW. God knows what they would have done with you in two thousand and one if you'd come back. Um, did you ever confide with, uh, with Edge and Christian about your, your frustrations and did they have any advice for you on, on, on how you weren't happy with, uh, your creative? Oh, sure. All the time. All the time. I was like, guys, like I, like they kept saying, you know, you're just here. You're the new guy. They're tested you out, you know, and because they were getting such a good push, I had to believe that they understood how to navigate those waters better than I did. I'm not a very political guy. Like, my yes means yes, my no means no. I don't like yeah. bullshitting people or backstabbing them like that. I just don't agree with that. I find that shitty. Um, so I, I would listen to them always saying, just be patient. It's just a test. Be patient. It's just a test. And I kept gritting my teeth and, and taking their advice. And their advice, I'm 100% positive, came from a good place. They weren't just trying to, oh, let's see how far we can fuck up. That wasn't it at all. They were saying, we really think this is the, the way forward. This is really our advice. So I did listen to them on it. And ultimately, their advice didn't work. Now, maybe they, maybe they threw that advice my way because 
it's easy to give advice when you don't have to eat the consequences of that, of the yeah. action the advice brings, right? So, you know, you got a million people say, oh, if he did that, I'd say this and fuck that, you know. But then if they were in the situation, they couldn't because they lose their job, they lose their missus, they lose whatever. So I think they all have the best intentions at heart. Um, the, the biggest turnabout was when Christian left WWE. Yeah. And he was on, he ended up going to TNA. He called me just before he quit. He said, listen, I'm really fucking fed up here. Like every week, I'm, they've got me doing this, this like a losing streak gimmick where I got to throw tantrums. Mm. And I had to come out in a chicken suit once. And he goes, like, you have no idea what it's like showing up every week to work and just dreading what creative might do. I said, do you understand who you're talking to, Jay? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. I said, now you understand why I was as frustrated as I was. As I was, right. when I was but he was contacting me asking how, how the indie scene was and if he could make a living doing that because he was so fed up with WWE, he was prepared just to work indies. And he didn't leave for TNA. He left just to leave because he was fed up. And because he only lives like an hour from Tampa, or an hour from uh, Orlando in Tampa, uh, I think Demore and Dixie went to his house to, to court him into TNA. But he was fed up with the company and wanted out because they'd so been mishandling him. Yeah. He just got mishandled him. I just got mishandled from the get-go. <laughs> yeah, man. Fucking hell. Um, Jack, I will throw it over to you after I just uh, wrap up a couple of other questions I had there. Um, yep. uh, I wanted to kind of scale back just slightly and just ask you about your, your TV debut, uh, wrestling debut against Dean Malenko on Heat on the 8th of August. Uh, I just watched this earlier and I thought it was a fantastic match. Really, really, uh, this is a great contest between you two. Um, what was it like working with Dean Malenko? He just seemed so smooth. Um, well, there's two, two ways to answer that. Number one, um, that match was predominantly all Dean. I was the guy who shut up and listened to the vet. Yeah. So yeah. If, if that came off as good as you're saying, I have to credit Dean. On the flip side of it, I hated working with Dean. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's, it's nothing against. He has a certain style where this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And it just, it works in such a almost like a dance format where every move leads to this. And there's such a format to it that there's no room to pause and put heat yeah, because you're always getting to the next move. Yep. Now, I like to, I like to do sequences. Absolutely. And, you know, especially cause I'm a lot bigger than Dean. If he's going to do a big dive or some kind of crazy thing, I want to be in the right position to catch him the correct way so that I don't take a knee to the face that I don't need to, but also that I don't drop him on his head. I, that's my job to protect him. Yeah. Um, so I don't mind doing sequences, but his is so sequential that it, it frustrates me. That oh shit, here's a here's a real window to work with the crowd and to, to get up right. and do it because we're already moving into the next sequence. Right, everything's already been too mapped out, and you can't like there's no creative license there to just exactly. All your what creative what license is early before you go out. Right. Okay, well, I still like the match. <laughs> my character because I already ate shit. Like, yeah. I already, you know, I'm not saying I have to beat Malenko going in. They should have given me somebody to beat. Yeah. So they go, okay, well, this guy is something. But instead, I showed up and was like, oh, all right, well, he's not going to do much. So I, I jumped off the, out of the gate very quickly. So it's hard, it's hard to, to build your heat when you haven't already got heat. Yeah. Yeah. 
I get you. It's, it's kind of like what happened with Sin Bodhi in his debut. He was put into a, an impossible situation where he was supposed to be a baby face against a guy who was becoming a baby face. So. I, maybe you can answer this question because I never asked him and I always meant to. It seemed the match was, it was, um, it was like a five minute match squeezed into 12 minutes. It seems they gave them to take, you know, put together a five minute match. They put together a five minute match. And then while they were out there, the rest going, oh, they're saying, draw it out, draw it out, draw it out. So it seemed like the, the thing at the end went way too long because they'd already kind of told their story in the first five. Yeah. And I, Nick is good. Nick's real good. And MVP's real good. Um, I don't see those two guys dropping the ball in the, in the finale of the match. I can see them, you know, having rickets in the beginning, but I always see them being professional enough to correct them and get to the end game productively. And my guess, it looked to me like the agents kept making them drag it out longer than it needed to. And just as they built to a finale, nope, do three more minutes. Nope, do three more minutes. And they were struggling to kind of get back on track, but maintain right. the heat and, and pop them at the right moment. Did Nick mention anything like that? Jesus, I mean, it doesn't ring a bell. All I really remember is he, he mentioned that, uh, you know, MVP was doing this losing streak thing and the crowd was sympathizing with him because they just wanted to see him finally get a win. Yet Kazani's out there and he's trying to wrestle like he's a baby face, but it's hard to do that when the crowd is sympathizing with his opponent and um, they didn't want to see him lose again. And, and uh, so that didn't really help Kazani's uh, debut in the company, just like how your debut didn't, help you out because you should be getting a win out of the gate to establish yourself. Right. Well, it's like when I worked, I worked King Kong Bundy years ago in Ontario before I got to, to WWE and he came over to talk to me and this, he was, I want to credit King Kong Bundy for being the first guy to give me my real confidence in the job because he came over, he's a monster, he's a huge man. And he sits down and he's like, all right, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, you're the, you're the WrestleMania main eventer. You tell me. Yeah. So he's like, well, do this, and then you'll take my arm, and da da da. I was like, and I guess I, I pulled a face. He's like, what? You got a problem? And I'm like, no, no, no problem. <laughs> Shit. I'll be honest with you. I'll be straight with you. I will do anything you ask because you're the boss of this match. However, if I was in a real fight with you, the last thing I do is grab your arm. Yeah. I just I wouldn't. I, I would go after your leg. There's no way I'm going to beat you on your feet. I got to get you down and keep you down. And yeah. you're, you're finished running thing in the corner. I want to make sure you can't do that. And a splash, which I don't want you to be able to jump. So yeah. I'll go after your leg. And he's like, oh, you think so? Because I'm, I'm a big guy. My knees take a pounding. I said, I understand that. But I said, you won't know I'm in the room. Like, I'll be, I'll work light. And to be honest, if I do this, there's no running. It's you on the ground. Keep trying to get up. I keep taking you down. Up, take you down. When you finally get to your feet, you're unbeatable. And... um He's like, all right, smart guy, why don't you call it? I'm like, look, I'm not trying to offend you, pal. <laughs> like, no, no. Go ahead, you call it. And I went out there and he let me call the whole thing. He didn't call one thing. The only thing he did, he did the avalanche and the splash. And when he hit the splash, he leaned in. He leaned in. He goes, would it be okay if I did the five? I'm like, you're Bundy, do the five. So I let him do the five count thing. And afterwards, he took me aside and put me over a million bucks. He said, yeah, I didn't want to interfere with your call, but you know, I think the five is part of my gimmick. I'm like, you can call whatever you fucking want. You're being called buddy. Um, he goes, no, you know exactly what you're doing. Keep doing the good work. 
And then a couple months later, we were on a show together, though not working each other. And my dad, and my dad's a, a big guy too. And he saw Bundy, went over and met him. He said, yeah, my son's Joe Legend. And Bundy stood there with my dad for 10 minutes and put me over like I was, you know, the next huge thing in the job. So I can't say enough good things about Bundy because he made my dad feel fucking great for his boy doing well. And he gave me my first confidence, letting me call a match with a guy of that stature. Yeah, and that's he, amazing. He wanted to be the heel in that match. And I was like, there's no way they're going to boo you. You're a WrestleMania made event and they never heard of me. And he listened to me and let me be the heel and him be the face. And I was right. He's, he's got the star power. So, of course, when Nick's working uh, MVP, they're probably going to cheer MVP simply because they know him. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I don't think those vignettes helped uh, um, Kazani out at all because I don't know if the crowd felt like, is he a good guy or a bad guy? I feel like the crowd were a little bit mixed up about that because the character yeah. was, you know, a bit different. And he's like the whole thing is weird, so it's it's hard to say weird and good. Weird yeah. is usually we weird, right? So it, it, he he needed time to win them over to say he's weird, but in a good way. Yeah, it's like so, with Gold Dust. Gold Dust was weird. Kane was weird, but you need a little bit of time to, yeah. to in, enjoy, it, it, understand the charm of how weird those guys are. Not yeah. just out of the gate; they're going to boo them because they're weird. Exactly. <laughs> they're going to they're going to reject anything that's too odd. Yeah. So give exactly. them a chance. Yeah, so that, that's where Nick suffered. It wasn't his fault. It was the fault of how they booked it. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just before you uh, got your release in March of 2001, you spend most of late 2002, th- 2000, early 2001 working heat, jacked and house shows. Um, was there anyone during that little run that you enjoyed working with most in the ring? Heat, metal and jacked. Um, I worked a lot of, I worked a lot of darks. I remember those. There were a lot of guys coming through who were, who I thought were going to do all right. And then they just didn't do anything with them. Um, I always enjoyed working with Gangrel. I worked him a bunch of times for, for WWE and I've worked him like a zillion times in England and Ireland and Scotland and stuff like that. Um, S.A. Rios. Yeah. I, I, he was a guy who had all the potential from his work rate to really dazzle the crowd. It's just unfortunate that he, he wasn't a guy who could do a promo. Yeah. He just didn't have the grasp of the language to really win an English speaking crowd over. But he was a hell of a talent. I always like working with him. And uh, Joey Abs, um, because he was blended in with the, the Mean Street Posse gimmick, didn't get really the attention he deserves. I mean, he was, he was a big, strong, the 270 pound guy that could do standing moonsaults and such. And he had the confidence to be convincing on the mic. He wasn't going to do a rock promo where you, you know, pop 10 catchphrases and have the crowd going berserk. But he had his promos were very Bret Hardish, where it was just like he was speaking from the heart, but you believed him. So Joey Abs deserved a lot better than than what he got as far as the solo push away from the pop. I enjoyed working with him. He was a talent. Really good. All the posse actually. I enjoyed working with them. Rodney should have been a major star. He was one of the funniest people I ever met. And we're big fans of the posse, man. We're, we're, we're trying our asses off to get Pete Gas to fucking respond to me on Twitter. And he just, I just, I, I think he's too far for me to get to, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think. He... <laughs> reach. Get Rodney. He's one of the best. He's so good. Man. So to get any of the guys in the main. Get any of them, man. That'd be oh, great man. story to learn about that. Fucking. 
being oh. so close with Shane and all that stuff and the gimmick that they were doing and fighting Briscoe and Patterson. That's champagne television. Anyway, um, I wanted to ask before I finally throw it back over to Jack, uh, tell me about what happened when uh, you got your got released in March of 2001, just after, I guess, just after WCW was bought. Oh, uh, well, I was bitter and jaded. Um, fortunately, I'd done enough stuff in Germany um, that I was friends with uh, Tony Sinclair, who's a big deal from the world sport days. And he's a big deal in Germany and as well as uh, England. So I called Tony and said, yeah, you know, I'm looking for a string of work. I've saved my money because, like I said, I don't party. I don't drink really. Yet. But at the same time, I don't want to deplete my finances. I want to keep working. And you know, what do you think? He said, let me call Brian Dixon, all-star wrestling out of uh, just Merseyside. It's over by Liverpool. It's working with and he called uh, Brian, and I think it was four days later, I was on a flight to England. And I stayed there two months, working every night. Usually, the, the, the strongest run I had with Brian as far as consecutive work, I worked 67 days in a row Fuck. with several double shots. Like Usually, you do a, a camp show and then a town show. So the camp show would be like an early match and then a tag match at the end or a battle royal. It was like two matches on that show. Then the same on the town show. But your town show match would be longer and a bigger deal. So 67 days with probably three double shots and one triple shot every week. Fuck. For Brian, uh, it was great. I loved it. I was never more at the top of my game. Loved it. And that ultimately got me my uh, – working for Brian ultimately got me my deal with uh, ITV over there where I did the celebrity wrestling show. Ah, uh, cool. Um, so did they – did Johnny Laurinaitis call you on the phone to let you know you were gone or Jim Ross or – He hadn't taken the spot yet. I was released the same day they bought WCW. Really? Oh. Fucking hell. Me and Jason Sensation, same day. Oh, because we're both right. – thing they're going to do is release the guys they're paying extra for. They're paying for our visas. Yeah. Now you have your own visa. But back then, when I was there, they were buying the visas. So they, they sacked uh, me and Jason on the same day. Right. Fucking hell. Over to you, Jack. Well, Kelly called me to say it because uh, – so listen, I just wanted you to hear it from a friend because you know, I didn't want some random office guy you don't know giving you news like this. And so, you know, Kevin was nice enough. He it still didn't make it any nicer. But the fact that it was somebody who gave a shit and like, I'm sorry to hear it. Like Bobby Eaton was the trainer in Memphis and he pulled me aside. He goes like, you know, not that my opinion matters any, but these guys are making such a mistake with you. I'm like, I appreciate the thoughts. You know, like Bobby is such a nice guy. Yeah. So surely like judging by the way that you're talking about your WWF experience, it wasn't the greatest. I mean, every day, every, every day there kind of sounds like it was, you, you just didn't know. You just didn't know what was going to happen. But surely there was yeah. some good times there. I mean, you were going down the road. You are working with some of your best mates or best friends. Um, yeah. I say mates. It's okay. I've been to England a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any fun sort of road stories from that, uh, from your run in the WWE? I mean, God, we've heard, we've heard a fair few from, um, from a lot of other people we've had in the show from around that time period. But I mean, do you have any good road stories that might have uh, lightened up the experience uh, that you had with the WWE? Well, um, yeah, of course. You know, I try to make the best of it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'll never complain about the money. Ugh, if Vince owes you five bucks, if Vince owes you five thousand, 
you get it. Yeah. He doesn't doesn't ever uh, have you miss out on a payday. So there's, I'm getting a delivery at my door, so I'm just yeah, talking through it. Sorry. Thank you, sir. So, um, but we would, um, yeah, you try to make the, the best of these road trips, right? And try to have a few laughs. And there's one that kind of carried over to WWA, which brought me to Australia. And what it was is, is that there's a thing that Christian and I used to do. Is it's so, it's so stupid, but it's it's so um, addictive. It's, when you greet somebody, you gotta put on the hillbilly voice. You gotta say, "How you doing? How you doing? How you doing?" We would do that at every toll booth, every drive-through, and it just became like you couldn't greet somebody without doing it. It's the most addictive thing ever. It seems completely foolish. But you can't stop doing it. <laughs> it yeah. becomes so disruptive, right? So we would do that all the time, and that would lighten the mood. Every time the phone rang, hey, you doing? Oh, how's by you? And just it became ridiculous. We got so many people doing it. And I kept doing it years after I left. So I came over. I did the WWA tour in uh, England, Ireland, Scotland, Switzerland. Then I did the other one in Australia, New Zealand, and Sting was there. Yeah. So. I was doing that. I ain't doing it with everybody. And I got a lot of people doing it back with me just because it's dumb, right? It's so dumb. We, yeah. So, so we were in, we'd done Sydney. We were in Melbourne. We'd finished the show and we were leaving the next morning. And as I'm coming out of the hotel, Sting is sitting right in front of the bus. He's in right behind the driver. So I get in the bus and I'm like, morning, Steve. And he's like, Joe, you've corrupted me. I was like, I did what now? Because you corrupted me. I'm like, really? I did what the NWO couldn't? Do tell. <laughs> and um, he said, last night, he goes, I'm still kind of on American time. So last night I was up late and I just couldn't sleep. So I got up to go take a pee. And from the bed to the toilet, during the pee, and all the way back. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Talking to you. Right. Oh, I was all proud of myself for corrupting, right? <laughs> then we get to uh, Auckland uh, for the pay-per-view. And I did, I worked Sabu, had a great match, was really happy with it. And um, I was standing back. I remember I had a run-in in his match. I can't remember what I did, but I had a run-in. He was working Jarrett. So I was standing around just backstage, and I looked down this long hall in the arena. And it, it's only got the one light over each uh, walkway so it's very dark it's very Phantom of the Opera and then down about 20 yards into the doorway walks Sting and he's looking like I'm looking at his left ear he's looking sideways and he's got the black coat he's got the bat he's got the paint and the hairs in his face and he's looking down and I guess he's just kind of going through the match in his head but I see him there and it's very it's like this should, this should be right out of a TV segment the way he stepped into into frame mm -hmm. So I go, okay, uh, see you out there, Steve. Good luck. Stay safe. And he looks down. Really slowed me. He goes, thank you, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed right up until I walked through the curtain to do the run-in. Uh, <laughs> awesome, man. That's awesome. In his full gear was fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> um. Right, so you sort of um, returned to the WWE in 2003 to do a series of dark matches. Uh, talk to us about those. Um, 
Who are some of the names you got to work with? Uh, Carl has not wrote them down, so I, I don't know. I didn't. I think it was there was a couple of dark matches in 03, but uh, I can. Oh well, that's. that's... There's only two. I remember it specifically. Uh, it was one weekend. Well, one Monday and Tuesday. Right. Oh, one. One. All right, maybe I got the date wrong. Let me just uh, have a look. But yeah. Um... Yeah. What was the story behind that? Well, what happened was is that I'd been working. I'd worked in Europe, and then um, I ended up working in uh, Puerto Rico for a few months. Mm. I got flown in there. Luke the Bushwhacker brought me into Puerto Rico. So I went and did Puerto Rico for a few months, but I always had TNA on the horizon. From the Australia and New Zealand, I talked to Jeff and they were going to, they said, yeah, we're, we're ready to bring you in, but you know, we need some time. So I said, All right, I'm going to Puerto Rico until, you, until you're ready. So they agreed that after I did the, the um, Australia New Zealand trip, I'd come back to Canada instead of Puerto Rico and I'd start with, with TNA. So I got to Detroit, I got in bag and I go to Windsor, which is across the, the river. Yeah. The Canadian side. I'm like, okay, well, I think I was back on a Tuesday and okay, it's Wednesday, let's go. And then all of a sudden I get the, we might need a couple weeks. I'm like, you might, what? Like, I, the fuck is going on here? I'm, I'm ready, I'm here, we, we had an agreement. And they uh, said, well, we, you know, we're, we're still trying to work some stuff out and da, 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 da. So I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. So they said they might be two or three weeks. And with that, I'd spoken to somebody, I can't remember who, with WWE. And they said, well, we're in Buffalo and we're in Rochester next Monday. We're in, in yeah. Buffalo Monday and Rochester Tuesday. Can you make it to one of those? Okay, I'll go Monday to Buffalo. So I drove down to Buffalo and did a match. And after the match, I was, you know, changed, just shaking hands. Basically, I just wanted the easy payday. Because, you know, yeah. And um, Terry Taylor pulled me aside and said, can you be here tomorrow? I said, what, like, you want me to go to Rochester tomorrow? He goes, yeah, it's, it'd be a very good idea for you to be in Rochester tomorrow. I said, all right, I'll go to Rochester tomorrow. What the hell? So I went to Rochester and did that. And Taylor said, all right, we really like what we're seeing. Um, you know, in a couple of months, I'll, I'll probably be able to give you a call. I said, well, I'm supposed to start with TNA, like, in the next week or so. He says, these guys change their minds at a moment's notice. Take your TNA. They, he knew he goes. They only do six six match contracts at a time. Do your six matches. Keep your profile high. I'll keep you know grinding away here. And then I shot back down to Windsor. I flew to Detroit or from Detroit to Nashville, and they gave me a decent start with TNA. Um, then they renewed it after I think two days. They renewed it another six weeks on top of it. And basically, I was there for about a year. But towards the end of the run, they stopped. Uh, stop flying me in. So I was kind of sitting, but I, by then, Terry Taylor had also left the company, left WWE. Oh, right. So I had no voice in the office, and I thought, well, but I'd just stick with who's guaranteed paying me as opposed to who might potentially pay me. Yeah. Just because I felt dicked around the first time. I don't want to sit around, you know, fool me once, shame on you type thing, right? Yeah. I found the info. It said uh, the 30th of the 6th, 2003 in Buffalo, Jerry Legend Feats. Uh, no, they don't know the opponent's name. Uh, and then the first of the seventh, two thousand three, Mike No and Mike Phoenix defeat Chad Wasnowski and Joey Legend. In I think matchup. I wrestled on the first night. I think it was a singles match with Chad the first night. Right. Okay. And then they put us in a tag the second. Right. Cool. Right. 
Well, sort of moving over to your TNA run, in 2004, you get in on TNA as one half of the red shirt security with Kevin Northcote. And you even become one half of the uh, NWA World Tag Team Champions, which, I mean, that must have felt so fucking good, given, you know, the last five years have just been so, what's going on? So how was that experience and why was it seemingly so short-lived? Um, Dutch was the booker in Puerto Rico. And I had a good run in Puerto Rico. I was maybe the Intercontinental Champ. But, so they used to be in a, in a decent spot there. And... Um, but there was, there was something Dutch, for some reason, a lot of people said, like, I said, Dutch is always polite to me. If I called him, he called me back. They go, oh, Dutch didn't like you. I'm like, he's always nice to me, and he gave me a good run in Puerto Rico. I don't see why he wouldn't. I, I'm always nice to him. Um, but I got to TNA about, I want to say, a month before Dutch got there. Yeah. Um, so Russo was using me, and using me pretty well. Um. For the, for, my, for the beginning of my TNA run. Then Dutch came in, and then Vince called me at home and said, yeah, he goes, like, I don't know what to say to you, but he goes, I'm not in any way in charge anymore. I'm just kind of a contributor, but Dutch is the guy. He goes, I, I, I don't understand. He goes, like, I've, I've thrown some ideas at Dutch about you, and Dutch is, is slapping them all down. He goes, I don't know why. He goes, I like your shit. I'm like, oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> I wish he did. And so it kind of flattened out because that was originally just me. And then they... I asked him, it'll take two weekends or two Wednesdays of our thing. One Wednesday, we're not on. So I'm only going to miss one week. If that's going to affect what you're doing with me here, I just won't go. But if it's, if you're not really having any plans for me that Wednesday anyways, I'll go to Germany and I'll, you know, because Germany doesn't have a TNA deal on TV, but I can big up the TNA idea amongst the fans there and maybe get them looking online at our stuff, if nothing else. And so I was told, yeah, go ahead to Germany. So I went to Germany. I came back. When I came back, ah, we don't have anything for you right now. So I sat at home for weeks. Yeah. Fuck. And so I, I pulled them more and said, listen, you know, like I've upended my life. I could have stayed in Puerto Rico. I was loving Puerto Rico. But I, you know, I, I want to my word. And so eventually Scott says, all right, he goes, and this is, this is where things always go wrong. They go, listen, I've got something for you. Before you shit on it, let me tell you. <laughs> no, he goes, they want to make you part of this red shirt security team. It's you and Northcutt, because I forget the big guy's name, but he's leaving. So they want to put you and Northcutt together. I said, because we both got long hair and facial hair? He goes, I don't know. His point is they want to put you guys together to be a tag team red shirt security. I said, like, even in Star Trek, having a red shirt is the kiss of death, let alone fucking... <laughs> let alone yeah. in wrestling I said also like I came in here as Russo's steamroller for for the SEX sports entertainment extreme I think it's called his yeah. faction and I was beating the shit out of Jeff and kicking tables off or kicking chairs off his head and everything and now I'm going to be his bodyguard like I use I use that as a springboard to fucking security work how was that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's stupid yeah well, look, right now that's the only thing on offer and you want to get paid or don't you? And I'm like, sadly, I want to get paid. So they put me in with uh, Kevin and I found out kind of like Kevin, Kevin was good, better than they gave him credit for. But they wanted me to be there, A, to quarterback the matches and add some psychology to them that maybe they felt Kevin needed to work on at the time. <laughs> and partially because I think they had plans for Kevin and they wanted me to be the kid sister of the team. They wanted me to be the salesman so that they could keep could protect Kevin. 
Yeah. Right. Kevin, Kevin never told me that. Kevin worked as hard. He would sell. He had to. Kevin's a great guy. But not in any way putting that on Kevin's head. It's what the office was doing. And they put us in. We did. We had a good couple of programs with um, America's Most Wanted. Yeah. And then, and then they built us up where we had to beat um, uh, Killings and uh, Road Dog yeah. for the end of the week. That's all right. And the thing they kept telling me is, the thing Scott kept telling me is, the one good thing Dutch says, he goes, no matter what we do to these red shirt guys, they always maintain their heat. Because we can do anything to those guys, and they just keep their heat. It's great. So I'm like, great. Do something with us. Yeah. And they used us to keep kind of knocking us back. And then when we won the belts, Shane Douglas was running for no reason because he wasn't going into a program with Road Dog or Killings. So there was really no point to shit. They just wanted to run in to, to, you know, get some controversy, I guess. So we won the belt. And then the next week, it was AJ and Abyss against me and Kevin. And then uh, Apollo came out and got into a fight with Abyss, and they left. And then AJ wrestled the both of us two-on-one, and he won the belts on his own. <laughs> ridiculous. Fuck's sake. Just ridiculous. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. I didn't understand that. That was a great way to get sympathy on AJ. And then put AJ in a program with a list. And he said he won the belts and they had to vacate the belts. We already had belts on the team that apparently, according to the office, had great heat. Man. Dumb gimmick. Redshirt screws a dumb gimmick. But if we had heat, we had heat. There's plenty of dumb gimmicks that somehow work. So if it's working, run with it. But they chose not to. Yeah. Who is rotting for these fucking companies, eh? Seriously, <laughs> like it's this just so much. We've we've had so many guests on our show that just tell us this, like they tell us about their experiences in some of these major companies, and it's just like any right person in those positions would have just used fucking common sense and given these people a fucking chance because you just never know. Yeah, I think a lot of it, like if you look at the tail end of WCW. Like, I like Vince Russo. I know it's, it's, you're not supposed to say that. But I like him. I don't agree with him. I agree with him probably maybe 30% of the time. But I, I like him. As a, I don't want him to look like I'm just shitting on him because everybody says something. I do like him. Um, but towards the end of the WCW thing, every time there was a pay-per-view advertisement, it was, wait do you see, big surprise. The minute you tell me there's a surprise, it's not a surprise. <laughs> like, yeah. The surprise definition, I shouldn't see I believe they call that the Dixie Carter syndrome now. But then the surprise was always somebody turning heel. Spain did it for a half hour. Goldberg did it for a half hour. This guy does it for a half hour. That guy does it. So I think they were trying to get that shock value water cooler talk. Yeah. So they come up with stuff because sometimes you do something unexpected because it draws interest. And sometimes it's unexpected because it doesn't make sense. And I think a lot of times they're just so busy trying to think of Nobody saw this coming. It's because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But they're just so busy trying. And, you know, sometimes creatively, you just burn out. Watch any TV series. After a while, there are certain seasons that they just run out of ideas. Maybe you got to freshen up the writing team. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, there's something that I found interesting. We're getting towards the end here, Joe. Um, but uh, you've become the IWF world champion in Russia of all places. Um, I just want to know what the experience was like working in Russia. I mean, that must have been pretty uh, different. I love Russia. Russia's great. Um, they, they've always treated me well. I've been there, I don't know, 10 times, something like that. Um, 
the first time I went, um, I, I was so excited. I was, I was in a, it was one of the only times I've bladed. I've only bladed every three times. But um, I just left TNA and I was moving back to Europe. And I'd already committed to leaving TNA and moving back to Germany. And then I get a call from my buddy here in Germany. So listen, we're running a show in Moscow. You want to do it? I'm like, yeah. If Can you fly me from Toronto to Moscow and then to Germany? You'll save me a $700 airfare. He's like, yeah, sure. So I said, great. So they flew me in and we were in this big kind of amphitheater. It was, it was circular. And it looked like you should be having operas or something in there. It was very oh, high okay. And I remember I went to the top of the bowl and I looked down just to see what the crowd's popping on. Because I was up in the championship. I was second last. Um, and then there was like a battle royal. So I didn't, it was nice. I didn't have to do the battle royal. But I went in there and um, I went up top to look. And in the opening match was uh, Morad Bosporus and Doug Williams. Two excellent workers. And they lock up and Doug grabbed a headlock on Morad. And the crowd went, oh. And I was like, I'm going to love this crowd. Wow. So they were fun to work with. Then the next show I did, it was a small arena, probably a thousand people. Had a great time. Place went nuts. Did well in merchandise too. And then the third show was uh, outside of a stadium at a festival. There were thousands of people. I don't know how many thousands of people were there, but that's where I won their belt. And then the next show I did, we did, it's the weirdest thing. I, the only reason I'm bringing it up, I got Raven booked over there. Right. He and I have been pals forever. He just got married, so he got to bring his missus. So, yeah, it's an interesting place for a guy to bring his missus, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was it was at a, an extreme sports festival, right? So they have, like, you know, the uh, bikes and, you know, they're doing jumps and all that shit, skateboards. That. The arena had 5,000 people in it. The entire – the surface where the ice would be for hockey is completely covered in sawdust and shit. They had two giant ramps that went up about, I want to say about 60 feet. Two of these ramps that go up, and they're like S-shaped, you know? like you know what Yeah. And then the platform between the two of them, and the ring was on that platform. So I wrestled Raven up on top of this platform, at the very top, 60 feet up. So we fought, and we rolled down the, the ramps, fought to the floor, hit each other with the garbage cans, went back up the hill, and then eventually – Got the pin in the ring. <laughs> Fuck side. <laughs> but it was it was about sixty feet in the air and just a manic crowd. Russian crowds are great. They're just absolutely crazy. It's, it's like how when you see a WWF show from or WWE show from Chicago where the crowd's just going nuts on everything. Yeah, yeah. Russian show I've done has pretty much been like an ECW arena event. They go wow. all over. They're wonderful fans. Holy That's shit. Awesome, man. Also, they, they buy a lot of merch, which I'm happy about, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you you um, worked a bit in Japan. Uh, you're such a journeyman. You've worked so many countries. You've even worked in Nigeria. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just amazing the amount of uh, places you've, you've been to. Um, you know, what, what's, your, what's your favorite place that you've been to that maybe might surprise people? Um, oh, there's a Your Mama joke in there I won't use, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay i'm gonna have to say germany because it's where i live where my kids are so politically correct uh definitely here um the uk has been wonderful to me i've done 138 tours of the uk 
So, and they did, I got to do the, the TV series there with Piper, which is, you know, Piper's one of the reasons I got into the job. So uh, the UK is great. Their style's great. I've always loved Japan. I've been there 15 times and always loved the crowds there. I like the style there. As far as in-ring style, probably Japan's my favorite. Um, Puerto Rico, just the crowds were insane. So it was always fun, whether it's a stadium or an arena. We were drawn huge back then. It was fantastic. Um, the only place that really uh, – Nigeria was, was not good. But I can usually uh-huh. find something good anywhere. I, I've always liked Poland. I've always liked Hungary. Australia was great. New Zealand was great. I just wish I could have spent more time. The trip was so regimented between travel day show, travel day show, travel day show, go home. Yeah. So I, I wish I could have spent more time. Well, maybe one day. There's only a few places left that I haven't been that I want to go. So, um, you know, hopefully I'll get those in. Yep, cool. Um, Jack, we've got a, a few more questions left on your end, and then we'll go into our segment called Five Second Frenzy. Yeah, man. Uh, so we've got about three questions left, Joe. Um, just sort of want to wrap this up, wind it down. Um, but of course, you have mentioned you're in Germany with your wife and kids. Uh, basing yourself in Europe these last few years, currently living in Germany. How has that been experienced for you? What was the sort of... Have you faced any challenges sort of going from uh, living in North America to living in a European country? There's not real... Because the wrestling business has so become Americanized. Mm. Um, it's actually worked to my advantage here because, like, you know, I go to um, I go to Scotland. They don't say I'm from Germany, which is pretty much next door. He's from Toronto, Canada, so... I get to be the, the foreigner they bring in, but it doesn't cost them an arm and a leg in airfare. Right, right? Yeah. Budgets. Um, learning German. I speak, I'm still not fluent, but the, the struggle is that I try to learn how to say please and thank you. Yeah. In every country I go to in the local language. I just think it's a polite thing to do. But in turn, it makes learning one language particularly hard because I'm trying to remember thank you in South African and in, in which Afrikaans is the language. And then Russian, and then Japanese, and Portuguese, and everything else. And I come back to Germany, it's a blur in my head. <laughs> um, the fact that I'm not an overly social person is perfect for me because now when people come up to me and I don't feel like like just people around the neighborhood or whatever, they start talking to me. I just like nicht verstehen. I don't understand, and then I don't have to to bullshit with people. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of play that up a little bit. When I'm home, I'm home. I just want to be a dad. I have one particularly really good friend here, my lawyer. He's a great guy, Martin. Um, but beyond that, I don't really have a lot of friends right here because that's my choice. I want, you know, I only have so many years that my kids are going to be home before they go off to college in their own lives. And I'm obsessive about being a dad. I spend all my time I can help it. Um, so that's been my absolute choice. I'm still great friends with um, buddies from high school, two of which a rock star now. One of them is moving over here. He's, uh, his girlfriend in uh, Munich is having a baby. He plays for a, a frog rock band called Saga, which has been around since the 70s. Wow. And he's the best drummer in the world. My other buddy, Chris, he's, um, he's the bass player for uh, Anvil. If you know no, him. <laughs> no way, bro. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have friends I can go in uh, who, who've done things in other fields where I, I don't have to always talk about wrestling with them. Like, yeah. I want to meet the band i want to go fucking hang out with the you know with the tour and have some fun that way so i i i get my guy time when i'm on tour or when i'm visiting friends but when i'm home i'm a dad 
That's it, man. It's good to see that you're passionate about being a father as well. I mean, I'm yet to experience it. Carl's yet to experience it, but we have a very close friend of ours um, who is who's, runs in this uh, show with us, who is a dad. And um, I mean, he seems to be liking it. I mean, oh, yeah. Well, I, mean, I, have, I have two 12 year olds Maverick and Connor. Maverick, Joshua, and Connor Logan are my boys. And then we have the, the bunnies here. We have. Um, we have. We have uh, the mighty Odin, king of Asgard, and hero of the seven realms. He's one. <laughs> and then we have uh, Lady Timber, warrior princess, and master of kung fu. Master of the Nobody else will have that, right? That's the key. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, what would be the ideal final match for Joey Legend? Uh, One where I don't get hurt. (laughs) If I go out on my own power and not because I get hurt. I just had uh, one of my hips replaced, and I'm going to have to get the other one done. Um, I apparently it's a genetic thing. It's not even from the wrestling. I thought doing oh. leg drops off top rope and off of cages and stuff for years that probably sped the process up. But I was apparently due. I have like extra bones in my hips, which scrape the cartilage and all that shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> replaced in September, and then I'm going to get the other one done in January. Um, so uh, it'll be a, a match without leg drops. That's for sure. <laughs> But um, I, I don't know, because I don't know, even though I'm 51, um, I'm 51 on the calendar, but I'm kind of still 17 in maturity. You feeling like you could still so, go? Oh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still champion of like, I don't know how many different outfits <laughs> over here. Um, I, I, I can still go when I choose to. Maybe I wouldn't do 67 days in a row the way I did years ago, but I don't go for any length of time unless it's big cash mm. because I don't want to for my kids but um, I have a couple of movies that I'm involved in that's coming up next year there's one pirate movie and another Viking film and stuff so I'm, I'm kind of moving in that direction as well um, my um, my publisher who's from New Zealand she just I uh, was messaging with her the other day she's still interested in publishing my autobiography oh man I had a I had a, a deal for it a while back it was a three book deal I was going to call it, um, the first one was uh, Joey Ledden, and no, I haven't heard of you either. <laughs> and the second one was Joey Legend. Well, that didn't go to plan. And then the third one is Joey Legend, where you just get to the effing point. <laughs> yes. They're all amazing. They're all amazing. <laughs> I've, done, uh, I've done 40 chapters of the first book. Um, I haven't touched it in a while, but I should really get back on it because she's talking to me about doing it. And what I'll probably do is... Um, I'd put out the book to coincide with one of these movies getting released and try to piggyback the attention on from one to the other. Good idea. Yeah. I think just releasing it now just would be another book on the shelf, but if it can get some attention through a larger medium, so be it. Right. Yeah. Definitely, man. And you have to hit us up when you get those out. Cause we'll be definitely, definitely be happy to plug those for you, man. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Um, so of course I got, I got one last question before we go to um, Carl's uh, final segment called Five Second Frenzy. Um, do you have any regrets in the wrestling industry? I mean, um, it's probably a bit of a broad question because, I mean, everyone's got regrets, but is there anything that sort of stands out to you that's just like, God, I could have really done with just not fucking doing that? Um, there's an asterisk next to it. Is I, I regret not um, 
not leaning on people in WWE more when I saw yeah. stuff that was going wrong and I didn't, I didn't make it go right. However, if, if things hadn't gotten the way they had, I wouldn't be living in Germany and being a dad to my kids. I'd be on the road all the time and I wouldn't have the amazing relationship with my kids. So if I have to trade that for a relationship with my kids, I do it gladly. But if I were to just look at it as a professional regret, yeah, professionally, I, w- I would have liked a better, stronger WWE run. But life regret, I don't if I have if I have the relationship I currently have with my kids. They're my best friends. I adore them. That's awesome, bro. That's awesome. Um, so we got this segment called Five Second Frenzy, and then after that, we'll sail off into the sunset. Uh, and of course, uh, once we're done recording, I would still like to just talk to you for a couple more minutes. Um, no problem. So here we go, Joe E. Legend, Five Second Frenzy. It's 10 quick fire questions just to learn a little bit more about you and some things that you like in life. Number one, your favorite wrestler? Uh, Kenta Kobashi. Nice. Favorite opponent? Peachy Cruz. Your favorite match you've ever had? With Chichi Cruz in the summer of 99 in North Sydney, Nova Scotia. Nice. Your favorite TV show? Currently Mandalorian. Favorite film? Oh, Jesus. Um, Fight Club is, is among the top ones. Oh, that's Fight a Club. pretty good one, man. That's pretty good. Um, favorite food? <laughs> uh, your favorite food? Oh, golly. Um, I love Thai food. Thai chicken oh, yeah. with peanut sauce. Thai food is it's very good. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, your favorite place to eat on the road? Oh, um, usually a steakhouse of some kind. Very nice. Uh, I know you said that you haven't had an alcoholic beverage since uh, you were 20, but um, I guess forget the alcohol. What's your favorite thing to drink? Good thing to drink? Uh, probably uh, raspberry lemonade. Nice. But usually yes. I just drink a lot of water, usually. Yeah. Uh, second last one, your favorite female body part. How many children are watching this for crying out loud? <laughs> Barely <laughs> any. <laughs> I will say this. Teeth. Interesting. You can have if you have the most beautiful woman in the world and then she smiles and looks like she's her tongue's in jail, you, you drop her down. To the point. <laughs> Good point. I love when we Teeth. get those different answers, man. Wink me over a lot. <laughs> we begin a lot of different answers, uh, Jack. Um, but that—that's the first time we've heard teeth. So, and a good point. Uh, and the final one, Joe E. Legend. Your favorite curse word? Cunt. Sick. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. Way too much. My kids are starting to say it. And I'm trying to, to talk about of it, but then they hear me say it. Completely. It's big, it's big down under. It's, uh, it's perfectly normal here. I mean, we get away with saying it. Over here, it's heat. And in Canada, it's ridiculous. Like, that's <laughs> sacrilege in Canada. It's Australia's <laughs> word, mate. <laughs> well, Joey, legend, I want to thank you for your time here. Uh, well, I guess during the day for you, but at nighttime here for us. Really appreciate it and glad that we got to tell your full story. I mean, there's so many things we didn't get to talk about, but that's okay. We got such a great story from you and I hope you're really proud of everything that you accomplished and all the places you've been and all the things that you've done. And, and now you're in such a great place in your life with your, your, your wife and kids there in Germany. So thank you again. Well, I just hope my kids are proud of me more so than me be proud of myself. All my kids be proud of me. That's key. 
That's cool, bro. No worries, bro. And uh, thank you, everyone, for watching the podcast here in conjunction with the WCWA Network right here on YouTube, Spotify, all platforms. We were here tonight with Joe E. Legend, and we will see you next time. Thank you.